Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. In this episode, I'm speaking with Aaron Solomon. Frankly, it's always a little hard to describe exactly what it is that Aaron does, but he's always thought-provoking. He's an innovator, commentator, and watchmaker. He lives a life that he's designed himself. This is his story. Aaron Solomon. Welcome. How are you? I am fantastic, and it is great to be here. It's so nice being on the other side of the podcast table. There you go. Yeah, podcasting, it's kind of its own little undertaking, right? You kind of have to spend some time thinking about how you're going to approach these conversations. So it must be, I, I mean, I know you do that regularly, sort of pose these questions, but it's, uh, it must be fun to be on the other side of it. So hopefully I'll, I'll treat you well. Well, well you, it you're going to be great at it, but it's kind of stressful. My stress levels of doing this part is zero. I'll say whatever <laughs> I want. <laughs> so let's start with this. I'm going to read a quote from somebody that you know, I, I believe it was a, an entrepreneur that you had worked with at Ivan Sermon. His observation of you was, Aaron is a walking bullshit detector. How did you turn that into the career that you have? <laughs> well, first of all, Ivan's a great guy. And I knew him from the time he was 14 years old and came from Siberia, oh. literally. Um, so I, I think that my critics would say that I'm walking bullshit, but it doesn't really matter because whether I'm a walking bullshit detector or whether I'm walking bullshit, either way, I've really never had any professional fears at all. And I attribute that in part to the fact that I'm an aging white guy, so I can really do nothing but fall up. <laughs> so you've taken advantage of, of that privilege. I like it. <laughs> well, I mean, why not? Right. I mean, no, honestly, it's like I've had kind of the good luck in my career to be able to try many, many different things. And a lot of them have been colossal failures and, and some have worked, but I really don't care about failing. And honestly, I know people say this and a lot of people who say this are really feeling the opposite. I couldn't care less what anybody in the world thinks about me. So if people like me, that's great. I mean, obviously that feels good. And if people don't like me, that's fine too. It doesn't really matter. I, I really like this quote that I read from an interview that you, you had participated in. So I'm quote, you need to really figure out what you're happy to do 24 seven. If you think you're going to have any real delineation between work and life, you're sadly mistaken, end quote. I find that a fascinating quote because it runs so counter to the normal or, or sort of the conventional wisdom, think in the sort of professional entrepreneurial kind of lifestyle coaching space, which is, you know, you have to figure out what, how to, how to parse your life into your work and into, you know, quote unquote, the rest of your life. You're sort of counseling the exact opposite of that, that you really need to, to merge those two aspects of, of your existence. So is that, do you still believe in that? Well, I'm sadly disproving Vanya's Ivan's thesis because I was totally full of shit when I said that. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I, I do believe it, but here's the thing. You know, I, especially in the past year, I've read so many people say the opposite of that, that your work life doesn't necessarily have to be things you're passionate about. It can just be your work. That sounds to me definitely conceivable, but a pretty miserable work life. Why would we not want to do things that we really deeply enjoy? Uh, and that's what I'm really trying to say in that statement that there is no delineation anymore. Come on, especially since the pandemic. Like, so, so I go from my desk 
to my couch, which is near my desk, and that's when I'm not working anymore. We're always working in some way. We're thinking about our work. We're thinking about projects that we want to do. And that's fine. It's not a bad thing. I always thought that this idea of work-life balance was a negative thing because it either meant that you had negative feelings about your life or your work. I have good feelings about everything that I'm doing in my life, and I choose to do different ones at different times of the day. That's, I think, my thesis. And so for you, so as an outsider, I mean, I sort of think of you as kind of serial entrepreneur, sort of observer, commentator, once a lawyer, previously a lawyer, uh, writer, content creator. Do I have that right? Are those the things that sustain you and and give you purpose? Yes. And you can imagine how like, and I do get reach outs all the time, by the way, I'm not saying this in any way as a humble brag. But because I've done so many different things, I get reach outs from really senior executive recruiters. And they say things like, "Um, you've done some kind of non-traditional stuff, pause, like I'm going to be able to wrap it into a package for them. And usually by the end of the conversation, I'm like, listen, I'm totally good doing what I'm doing. And I think I would be a nightmarish fit for what you're looking for, uh, because I've done all these things. And the number one thing that you mentioned in your passage is I am an observer. So I think I'm kind of able to cut across different generations of interest as well. When I find something that I see that I'm interested in, I deep dive into it. So even if it's something like, you know, how do you do fellow kids? Like anything that young people might be into, some of it I think is really kind of silly and other things I'm super, super into. And the same, by the way, holds true with things like technology. I'm of the age where I wouldn't have been a quote unquote digital native, but I dive really deep into the technologies that work for me, including social media. So I think it's a very good observation, Bob, that you made. And I think I've done all of those things and always will do them. It's difficult to define and explain kind of what I do day in and day out because every day is different. How deliberate is that? Is that something that you've purposefully or intentionally sort of designed for yourself? Or are you kind of reacting to the environment that you found yourself in? Well, both. And I'll tell you that a key year was 2016, 2017. And here's why. So before that, I don't think it was as deliberate. So, you know, I started working at this huge, amazing urban accelerator in Toronto. And that relationship started, which was like a five-year relationship, just because somebody knew me from Twitter and said, come have a coffee. We'd love you to be like a volunteer startup advisor. And that turned into a very senior role. But that was just like, sure, I like coffee. I'll come down for coffee. I was in a really kind of deeply abusive professional relationship that ended the beginning of 2017. And after that, I was like, okay, it's going to be intentional now. I'm not just going to do things like show up for coffee and maybe something comes out of that. I'm going to actively do the things that I want to do in my life and do them with people that I want to do them with and absolutely in no way ever work again with people that I don't want to work with. And that timeline, by the way, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later on, also fits the kind of birth of one of my projects, which hopefully will be an ongoing project for many years, which is my watch company. So the timing of 2016, 2017 was a mark in my life of a lot more professional intentionality. And so, I mean, you mentioned the that you were in a professional relationship that was un, unsatisfying. Was that, so before that, I mean, I think the, the stereotype about lawyers is lots of lawyers are constantly imagining themselves doing something else. 
right? Like they're, 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 they're dissatisfied with their, their work. Um, and they're constantly wishing that they could do something other than what it is that they're doing. And maybe that's, you know, within the law, outside of the law. I, I mean, before 20, before this sort of transition period in 2016, 2017, would it be, have been fair to describe you as, as having the, that sort of sentiment? To an extent, because I was trying so many different things, kind of wondering what would stick. And nothing sticked, which nothing sticked, <laughs> nothing stuck, which was, I like stick better. I'm going to use that. Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. <laughs> yeah, nothing stuck, which, you know, you would think in the middle of it was a bad thing, but I think it's a good thing because then you fall into the trap that you talked about before, where if something does stick, but it's not necessarily something you're super passionate about and want to be working on every single day, do you do it anyway because you develop a skill set at it? And I'll tell you, Bob, I continue to work with lawyers every single day. And I like your observation about lawyers, but I will make a big delineation in my mind. I've worked over the past few years, especially when I was living in Europe, with really senior leaders of very, very major legal entities, not just law firms. These are like, you know, several million dollar a year plus people. Mostly, I was going to say guys, but it's pretty much all guys. Yeah. And now I work with a lot of people that are like trial lawyers. And I'll tell you, the trial lawyers are a lot happier with their lives, which may be counterintuitive to some. The people who are kind of in the trenches every single day, trying to help people, trying to get big verdicts, to me, have seemed, in my experience, and I've worked with a lot of them, much more satisfied and focused than people who are kind of in the legal ether trying to do things that don't have as much of a blueprint. Just one person's observation. I'm not, not sure if it's worth anything, but that's been my feeling as well. That's interesting. So uh, let's pick up on that. I, I do want to bracket, we'll have the conversation about living in Europe and, and your move back to Canada uh, in, a, in a minute. But do you think, so my sort of take on various species of lawyer, there are types of practice which are suited to particular personalities, or I guess it's, it's really the other way around. There are types of personalities which are suited to particular practices. And to be a trial lawyer, you need to be a particular kind of person. Uh, in the same way that to be a tax lawyer, you need to be a particular kind of person. Like tax lawyers are sort of born or not bred. Am I wrong about that? I mean, do you think, given the experiences that you've had and the, the conversations that you've had with, with people in, in so many different fields, are there personality types and, and the task is to kind of figure out what works for your personality? Or is, is the personality a little more malleable and you can kind of design yourself uh, as we were talking about before, you can design yourself into a particular life. I feel it's the latter because I think that there are certain stereotypes which are true about lawyers in different AOPs fitting different types of personalities. But I've known very successful and do know very, very successful trial lawyers like who've had massive verdicts over the years who are literally the antithesis of what you expect to be a successful trial lawyer, but they're able to, to modify and fit and take the edges off or add edges to their persona to fit that role and to be successful for their clients. But I do think that it would certainly does help if you have the type of personality where you don't have to make these kinds of changes. It's just like getting out of bed in the morning for you. So I think that the stereotype has some truth, but I think the great ones are able to change. 
So let's pick up that thread about Europe. So you spent a number of years living in Berlin. First, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on Berlin as a city. So I've, I've been to Berlin. I feel like I'm missing something about Berlin because there's lots of people that I've talked to who love Berlin. Like they seem to have some kind of primal, like atavistic connection to Berlin. I enjoyed Berlin. I liked being there. I haven't spent a ton of time there, but I enjoyed Berlin in the same way that I enjoy you know, London or, or Seville or something. What was your reaction to Berlin? So when I moved to Berlin in 2017, I was already kind of a seasoned European in that I'd lived in Stockholm before and spent tons of time living and working in Europe. So the Europe thing wasn't new to me. And I chose Berlin um, because I went with my wife um, to basically follow an amazing opportunity that she had that wasn't in Berlin itself, but it was in a smaller place that I really had no desire to live. And when I got there, I was working with some guys in the legal space, trying to build something very big, similar to what I built in Toronto. So Berlin made a lot of sense that we would live there and she would leave the city and do what she needed to do when it was time. But I'm with you 100%, Bob. I heard all these things about Berlin and I chose to live in East Berlin, which I found much more interesting. And, you know, people, there's obviously one Berlin, but people still do think about Berlin as far as West and East Berlin. There's even a notable difference in internet connections because so much money went into kind of East Berlin reparations that the old parts of town where nobody wanted to live are now super nice and expensive and have better internet. Um, Berlin eludes me as it eludes you, maybe even more so having lived there for close to four years. The one thing on a very personal note that I noticed about Berlin, and this is right around the time that Trump got elected, is I felt as someone who is Jewish and identifies as Jewish, fairly safe when I got there in, in 2017. And by the time I left Berlin in 2020, when the pandemic hit, it became, as much of Germany did, a far less comfortable and a far less place to be if you identified yourself as Jewish or any other number of things. Um, so that's one thing that I felt personally. Uh, but I agree. The city appeals very much to some. And there are things that I loved and do love about the city. Happy to jump into some of those and some that I just don't get. Yeah, let's hear about those. I, I, I mean, again, I, I, re I quite enjoyed Berlin. And I, there's one of the senses that I had was that Berlin is like this sort of palimpsest, right? Like it, it's kind of been, it kind of got wiped clean I guess 75 years ago now at the end of the second world war and this new sort of structure was imposed on the city with the split between east and west and then you know in 1989 to the early 90s that again sort of gets erased to some extent and, and they try to start over and so there's this sense of these ghosts for lack of a better term constantly hanging around uh which i find sort of fascinating but what, what was it what were some of the things that you enjoyed about living in Berlin? I love being on the ground floor of startup culture because when the legal thing that I'm working on imploded fairly quickly, I went to become the head of growth at one of Europe's top startup accelerators. So all the cool companies that we've probably heard of since then, I had an opportunity to be around and work with, which was great. So Berlin does really have an amazing entrepreneurial and startup culture, very similar to some North American cities, you know, 20 years ago or 25 years ago. So mm -hmm. by, by the way, an idea that people have that Berlin is like so far ahead of the game when it comes to things, even stuff like fashion. It's really not. It's way behind a lot of other places. So a lot of the interesting things of startup culture in Berlin in like 2017 happened in other places like in 2003. And people who know and have spent a lot of time in places around the world gets that Berlin kind of copies things and they do things slowly. 
On the other end of the coin, you know, things that I like personally very, very much is, you know, Berlin's got an amazing food culture. It's very interesting what Berliners think of as quote unquote Berlin food, because it always comes from a different culture, even like the famous Berlin kebab, which is just amazing, is Turkish. And there are parts of town in Berlin. Berlin has a massive Turkish community. I think it's like 600,000 people. The food in some of these parts of town are amazing. I never became a huge fan of German culture. My German language skills didn't progress as quickly as other languages. And I speak parts of like six languages. German, I found extremely difficult. And I'll tell you that even in Berlin, which a lot of people think, you know, oh, you can get by in Berlin in English. No, you can get by in places like Mitte, where there's a lot of English-speaking people. But I lived where the old Stasi executives lived, in deep into East Berlin, and not one person, even on my street, spoke a word of English, or at least would speak a word of English. So absent perfect German, it became even more of a challenge. It's a great place to visit, and I do know people who live there from North America and from English-speaking countries, but it was a super challenging place, and to me, much more challenging than living somewhere like Stockholm, even though my Swedish is a lot better than my German. <laughs> so was, was the, were those challenges what sort of prompted you to decide to move back to Canada or was it the pandemic or how did all that Yeah, we had this thing called together? the global plague. <laughs> so <laughs> what happened was we had decided for a variety of reasons that we would begin to plan our move back to North America. Not really honestly even sure where at that point. Uh, and we were living in a big place in Berlin and, you know, we'd furnished it. We had all, we were settled in. We'd been there for almost four years. And through conversations with the Canadian government and with Air Canada on a Monday, we were basically told, because, you know, the pandemic, when it started to spread, it spread really fast all over the world. And we were told basically that there was a flight leaving from Frankfurt on Wednesday, and that would be a really good flight to be on. Not that it was necessarily like the end of the get out of Germany window for that period, right. but it was close. So we managed to kind of liquidate everything we had. Luckily, we had a lot of good friends and we were in a pretty populous place. And uh, 36 hours later, we went on our train to Frankfurt with our beautiful standard poodle. And we brought her home to where she was born in North America. And we ended up in Montreal, my hometown. Not sure whether or not we would stay uh, living in an Airbnb because we were lucky to get one at the last second. And then we did decide to settle here. And this is where, where home is going to be. Uh, it was super stressful leaving on short, short notice. And then we landed in Montreal, which was really starting to spike in the pandemic as well. Um, so it was uh, definitely an interesting and exciting time. You weren't able to outrun the pandemic, unfortunately. The pandemic either followed us or we brought it with us. Oh, you're, <laughs> you're, you're the Canadian patient zero. Good to know. Um, <laughs> Good to know, exactly. <laughs> so I want to talk about sort of the, the, the activities that you've, you've undertaken in the legal space and your, your role in these uh, accelerators, because to me, that's, that's a really interesting, it, it's, it's an interesting place to be because it's really at the interface of two, what I think of as two completely different worlds, which, you know, don't necessarily speak the lame, same language, don't necessarily understand what the other is doing, at least two different worlds. But you've done that in Toronto with LegalX. You've done it in, in Berlin. Do you still have an appetite to to stay with accelerators? Like, are they, are they still something that kind of gets you up in the morning? No, because I think the accelerators have kind of run their course. I love what you said in the beginning. I got to pick up on that right now. What you said in the beginning about people coming from two different worlds, the legal industries never realized that. So when you get internal people from law firms trying to do legal accelerator things, and then they put in money and resources and wonder why it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Like, 
I was doing things a decade ago after I left an education startup that I was running, where I was like teaching entrepreneurship basics to tons of international entrepreneurs in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. I come at this from the startup perspective, having done several startups myself. I don't, I never came at legal incubation or acceleration, whatever people want to call it, including the great international divide between whether we call it legal tech or law tech. I think only if you're from London, you call it law tech, but nonetheless, um, from the legal perspective, I came at it just the way it's funny because somebody approached me recently about running an accelerator for, you're going to love this, for video gamers. And I said, oh, this is actually interesting because I couldn't care less about video games. I don't think I've played a video game since I played, played like in television football when I was a teenager, right. which would actually, when you think about it, when you boil it down, make me the last person they, should, they would bring on, but the first person they should, because wouldn't you want someone running your video game accelerator who couldn't care less about video games rather than a video game fan? Because I would be able to look at companies and decide from the startup perspective which companies we should invest in, not caring less about what game it was or what they were building, because I wouldn't understand any of it anyway. Right. So legal's made that mistake. Legal has had legal process people lawyers, people who've decided, well, I'm a partner now at a law firm. I think maybe I'd like to try the innovation thing. It doesn't work. They'll never stop doing it because they're married to the idea, which I found very interesting when I was in Berlin, when some very big legal entities that weren't just law firms, like I've mentioned, approached me and wanted the outsider. And it took a lot of internal buy-in from these companies to get me to do things like run events for them in Amsterdam and Brussels and places like that with hundreds of lawyers from around the world where I'm like, number one, you got to try to forget as much as you can about being a practicing lawyer. We're actually going to look at things from a startup lens today, which is going to be very uncomfortable because you don't know about this kind of stuff. So I think that the industry as a whole has approached things wrong. I've been the voice in the wilderness, one of several, but not alone. Just saying this since like 2012, nobody listened. So I really don't have a lot of taste for accelerators or incubators anymore. I'm always going to have a taste for helping people drive legal businesses forward, whether that's a legal startup or whether it's somebody looking to grow their practice. But I don't think I'm an accelerator, incubator, any guy anymore, because I don't think there should be a lot of them in 2021 and beyond. Let's talk about that notion of the outsider, because that that strikes me as, as one, one of the ways or one of the tags that I might put on a picture of Aaron Solomon, right? Because my interactions with you on social media and elsewhere, I, I sort of, you provide these sort of Gnostic kind of utterances and I always have to think about what you've said, right? Whether it's a tweet or whether it's uh, a comment in a, in a conversation on your podcast, I'm always like, oh, like I gotta think that through for a second. And I think that ability to make those sort of insightful observations comes from, or at least in part, informed by a status as an outsider. Do, do I have that right? You've got it right. And plus I make those comments because I find myself fascinating. <laughs> but no, I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? <laughs> you got to start somewhere. No, seriously. Yeah. I mean, I've always been an outsider. And I think part of where the outsider thing comes from, and very few people know this about me, is that when I was a kid, because of the business that my dad ran, um, his job was to open up a new sales office every six months. 
So we would move every six months when I was a kid all across the world. I got to live in London. I got to live all throughout the United States where I spent much of my childhood. And I remember this one thing, and you know, some people know this, but very few people know the story. I was living in Minneapolis. I think I was in grade three or something like that. I went to school one morning. I came back to our townhouse. I opened the door and all these townhouses looked the same. And they were all like named football names, you know, after stadiums and things like that. I opened the door and I was, oh my God, I'm in the wrong place. This place is empty. And then I saw my mother around the corner and my dad got news that morning that we were leaving. The movers came the same day. And I remember this so clearly because she packed my lunch for the next day, but she made a mistake for the next day for lunch. I got a bag of carrots. (laughs) That was not pleasing. So I think I was always an outsider because as I went into every new city, as I went into every new school, I would either be way behind or way ahead academically especially with things like math, right? I'd either be doing math that I did two years ago or I'd sit in the math classroom being like, hi, teacher, I don't understand any of this. So I was always an outsider and that never changed because I don't think my whole life I've ever spent more than five years anywhere. And five years for me is kind of a long stretch. So being an outsider just has always been the status quo for me. I don't see that like as a badge of glory, but I think that the outsider perspective comes naturally from someone who's actually an outsider. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, those childhood, I was going to say childhood traumas, but just childhood experiences, they, they imprint themselves on you. And so to me, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but to me as, as somebody, so I did not, I had a very sort of sedentary childhood, you know, grew up in the same place. Um, but I was, I was quite shy. One of the things that I really enjoyed about technology and and sort of the early emergence of, you know, a computer culture and a gaming culture, and especially the internet uh, in the early to mid nineties was that it gave me this ability as somebody who was, you know, fairly introverted and, you know, happy to sort of, you know, be with myself. It gave me the ability to connect with other people on, uh, you know, on a on a common sort of field where we shared interests and and we were able to converse about the same things that we were interested in. Was tech? What role did technology and, and particularly sort of uh, digital network technology play for you? It's funny that you mentioned technology because when I, whenever I think about technology, I think about being a 3L in law school where I saw the internet for the first time, graduated in the 90s, right? And I remember looking at a map of the province of Quebec and watching it come in on a super slow connection, almost pixel by pixel, thinking this is never going to catch on. Well, obviously I was wrong <laughs> as I am about so many things. Um, And I just love so much about technology. And I I don't mean that in any way in a superficial way. I'm on technology so much of the day because it's meaningful to me. When I think about so many people that I know in my life, a lot of them I know through social media. And it's great. I mean, like Bob, you and I have met in person, but it's great when I know so many people through social media that I've still never met. And these people are all over the world. And it's a real thrill. Like, So I think social media is amazing. I think technology is amazing. I think it's an empowering thing for all people to explore parts of themselves that are either not public or that they're afraid to really dive into. And I think that the right tools in technology, in the right hands, can change one's life and career trajectory. So I'm a huge proponent of technology, but I will end by saying, I don't believe in technology for its own sake, which circles back to our conversation about the law. So many things I've seen in the law and legal technology are a solution deeply in search of a problem. 
And I think that the way that we use technology day in and day out isn't like that at all. Fascinating. I'm going to, as we sort of round the corner here, I'd like to talk about one of the projects that you've been engaged in over the last few years, which has sort of personal resonance for me as a watch nerd. But you and uh, and Peter Carianis started a watch company a few years ago, Mission Watch Co. Walk me through the genesis of, of that undertaking and, and let us know what, what you're doing today. Of course, I can walk you through the actual day that we decided to do it. It was pretty funny. So I knew I was moving to Berlin and Peter and I had known each other for a few years and we became fairly good friends. And one of the passions that we shared was watches. In my own life, I became a watch fanatic when I was super, super young. And I remember this Japanese Seiko chronograph that I got my, for my bar mitzvah when I was 13 years old. And with the moment that I first put that watch on my wrist, I was hooked. And I have owned literally thousands of watches in my life. In fact, when I was a teacher many careers ago, um, I started a little watch trading business, started on Mm -hmm. eBay. When eBay was a message board with no images, I was one of the first probably thousand users on eBay. And when I would focus on this, I would make significantly more trading watches or even going to buy them at like, you know, a, a, like a clearance store, like, you know, a discount store, and then selling them on eBay that I would make in my regular job. But I was always passionate about having watches, and I could probably list 200 watches that I wish I never would have sold or traded. But Peter and I loved watches together. So kind of we had this great little goodbye, I'm leaving for Berlin soon lunch, at this great Toronto place called Freshy. I had these wonderful dragon fries. And we went across the street to a place that he loves called Van Rijk Jewelers. Mm-hmm. Van Rijk is an estate jewelry place. Mm-hmm. And I'm not an old watch kind of guy, really. But Peter said, don't worry, trust me, this place is crazy. And it is. They had so many watches of all of the great brands, <laughs> like just a massive amount of beautiful watches. Um, And we both ended up making a purchase on that day. And as we were in the watch store for almost two hours, you know, we said, well, we've been talking about a watch company for ages, for ages. Like, why don't we just do it? Like, okay. We had no idea at all what we were doing. Honestly, Bob, the only thing we knew was we love watches, which in retrospect may be a terrible idea to, you know, to start a watch company on, but for us it worked. So going quickly from the origin day through the origin story, we decided what we wanted to do was to build high quality watches in China that we could sell at a reasonable price. I'd lived in China before, I'd seen Chinese manufacturing. And we just knew that we couldn't build watches in places like Germany and Switzerland and offer them at the kind of fairly reasonable prices that we wanted to. So we did this, we made the connections that we needed to make. It took us a couple of years. And this is in 2017, we decided to start the company. In 2019, our first watch, the Mission One came out. It was a really good automatic watch. It sold for about 800 US dollars. It sold out. Our second watch came out a couple of years ago. That's now sold out. And we just launched our third watch called the Mission Solen. It's called the Solen because it's Swedish for sun. Uh, it's the Pantone yellow, uh, which is the 2021 color of the year. And I know that's a real fast walk through the whole thing. But the thing that I think that we're most proud about is that we started a watch company, very volatile business to be in a watch company. Four years ago, and we're still around, 
and we're still selling watches and we've sold our watches out. And the most important thing is we've honestly built a watch family because our watches are all over the world. We've sold watches in Finland and Indonesia and Hong Kong and throughout Canada and everywhere. And we've got some people who bought all of our watches and they send us pictures for Instagram and they love what we make. But I'll tell you this last thing, and this is the most important thing for anybody listening to this podcast that I'm going to say. The only thing that Peter and I could possibly do in starting a watch company, literally the only thing we could do is build watches that he and I would both love. We couldn't build a watch that you would love, Bob, because even if you're a watch fanatic, like we're not you. But we figured if we built watches that he loved and that I loved, and believe me, there's daily negotiation between the two of us on design, <laughs> then other people might love them. And we've been very lucky in doing that. The minute that we decide to build watches that other people will love that we don't love, the company's going to go under. I guarantee it. And we'll never do that. So make things that you love and hopefully that will resonate with other people and they'll love it too. And it seems to be if working. Exactly. If you make honest things that you yourself as a lover of X, whatever X is, if you're a chef and you make food that you love, that you're going to be proud to serve to other people, some other people are going to love it. And we've had that. We've had like totally unbiased watch reviews of our watches. We were re recently in GQ as one of the top 15 watches under $500. And this, these all came as great surprises to us. But yeah, I mean, it really does catch on if you're building something genuine that you love. And that's all we can do. I love wearing all of the watches we built. Amazing. Do what you love. Maybe that should be the final tagline for this episode. Do what you love. I'm going to go with that. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. You are amazing at this. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com. Zero, zero, nine, six.